Hey everybody, Scott Malcolm here from Money Mechanics. Just a quick message to say, any information that we share during this podcast is general information only. Please do not act on that information without considering the appropriateness towards your specific needs and outcomes. Ideally, we suggest that you go and meet with a financial planner and get personal advice. Hi folks, welcome to another exciting episode of Looking Under the Hood. I am Scott Malcolm and we are unpacking the money stuff. Today's episode is a bit of an exciting one. So I am a financial planner, I'm a bit of a a tax geek at the best of times and I often talk to people about the system that we're all born into, how we sort of get into that system, we start to learn uh, about how it works and develop habits, attitudes and behaviours around it. I do that not in a a sense to sort of put the system out there and, and out of control, but more so to give you an understanding that we do have as human beings some influence on how that system works. And from a financial perspective, one of those elements is the tax system. And um, I'm actually really excited today to have the probably number one Cambassador. So people who uh, who know me know that I'm, I'm from Canberra, Canberra born and bred. Uh, I do spend half my life in Melbourne and half my life in Canberra, but I, I do call myself a Cambassador. But I, I think my guest today probably gets to have the, the number one Cambassador hat. So I'm excited to welcome along uh, Chief Minister and Treasurer, Andrew Barr. How are you, Andrew? I'm well, thank you for that introduction. Great to have you here. So the reason I wanted to get Andrew along today was to talk about some of the tax reform and and some of the elements that happened there. But Andrew, I do put all my guests on the spot. So I like to ask everybody that comes along, what's one of your early happy or joyous memories when it comes to money? Do you, do you have one of those? <laughs> ah, well, I guess it depends on which, which stage of the life cycle. Uh, possibly that spending your first Pocket money is the perhaps the earliest memory. Oh, that's a good one. I think buying my first car would be another, and then that uh, sense of trepidation in signing up for a mortgage. Yeah, wow. But then you know, as the years go by, watching the the outstanding balance come down, so hard to sum it up in just one. But successfully paying off a loan is a pretty good achievement. Haven't got there yet on the mortgage, but that's in. It's on the way there at some point in the next few years. Fantastic! And I, I'm now really interested. What did you enjoy spending the pocket money on the most? Would have been lollies. I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Always had a sweet tooth. I, I remember those uh, one cent and two cent carob buds and, and things at the school, and that they were always good fun. Yes, yes. I think the putting putting your fifty cents on the counter and what can I get for this. Uh, well, I'm just having flashbacks to perhaps combining two great passions of mine when I was, you know, five or six years old, and that was collecting either footy or cricket cards oh. that would come with a stick of bubble gum as well. You'd, so that's you'd get both. Yeah, yeah. Those were the days. They they were the days because my my nephew is big into the AFL cards now, and you don't get the the, the bubble gum anymore. Oh, okay. The fun police have taken the sugar hit out, have Exactly, they? exactly right. Anyway, anyway, back to some more serious uh, money discussion. And 
Tax reform is big in the news. A lot of people probably tune out when they hear those words coming together because they don't want to get as excited and engaged as a, as a finance geek like myself. But I guess tax history in Australia is quite interesting because from sort of 1915 to 1942 post-war, we had sort of federal and then state-based taxes. And so that, that system then evolves over time. And Capital gains tax was introduced in about 1985 and then we had the, the good old GST come along in, in 2000. And so I guess being in the ACT, Canberra, I think, correct me on this one, Andrew, if I'm wrong, but stamp duty sort of came about in 1969 or something. Am I? That sounds about right. I guess the history of the taxation arrangements in the Australian Federation uh, is one of uh, sort of an increasing creep of tax powers away from the, the state towards the Commonwealth Government. And the, the problem with that has been it's exacerbated what's uh, another very sexy title, Vertical Fiscal Imbalance. Oh, wow. Which, which <laughs> is effectively that the federal government raises more tax than it can possibly spend mm. uh, and state and territory governments have more expenditure than they can possibly raise in revenues. And so hence we have this situation where a large part of the Commonwealth budget each year is a redistribution of tax revenues they've collected back to the states and territories to provide the health, education, transport, housing, yep. community services, all, all of that. And so our system, our federation system is not great at aligning the revenue raising with the expenditure and service delivery. And mm. various iterations of tax reform over the last century have perhaps made that worse mm. rather than better. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think, especially on the GST front, and I don't, know, I don't want to get uh, probably angry people on social media with my comment here, but it does make it hard to escape GST. But I guess it's in that distribution back to the states and back to that that expenditure that then makes it a, a little bit of a challenge, doesn't it? Yes, there's there's nothing that animates state and territory treasurers more than the discussion about how the GST is is distributed amongst the the states and territories. But what I often find is that there's a bit of mythology built up about what the GST was meant to do, and it, you know it did replace a range of other taxes. Uh, but the political compromise that saw it come into law meant that it didn't uh, have the same scope and revenue-raising capability, and that's why we still have payroll taxes and stamp duties at a state and territory level. Because mm. when the decision was made to exclude so many goods and services from the GST uh, in 1999 in the deal that John Howard did with the Democrats... Mm. That meant it raised less revenue and so fewer state taxes could be abolished. And then the other thing that was meant to happen was that the GST would be a growth tax that would keep pace with the cost of service provision. Unfortunately, that's not been the case, that mm. health inflation has grown faster than the GST pool. And so this tax that was meant to provide for public health isn't mm. growing fast enough. And that's, we've really felt that during the pandemic this year. Mm. Governments have shied away uh, on, on both sides of, all sides of politics, I should say, in, in increasing the GST. And I think, I know, personally, I, I feel like that could be a good 
easy win at a federal level to increase that pie. And I won't put you on the spot with that. <laughs> well, no, just there's no there's no political incentive for them mm. to do so because they'd wear the political pain of either the tax increase or the base broadening, but the money would go to the states yeah. and territories. So we've got ourselves in quite a bind now that uh, you know, the, the biggest mistake the states and territories made, and it's understandable that it was made, was during the Second World War they ceded income taxing powers to the Commonwealth. And that has been the biggest shift and the biggest cause of vertical fiscal imbalance. Now, a federal system where each state and territory had a different level of income tax in the Australian context seems quite weird and hard to come to terms with, uh, but that would would effectively more align revenue with expenditure at the different levels of government. But again, it's a brave politician who goes down that path. Malcolm Turnbull floated this when he was yeah. Prime Minister mm. uh, and it, it lasted about a week. That's the interesting thing in some of this this tax policy and and thinking and I, I don't know if it's still too soon you being on the on the labor side of politics to to talk about franking credits and negative gearing I know you you're not at a federal level but um how does this tax policy come about? Like, it's not just that you then roll into the Legislative Assembly on on the Monday after the election and say, okay, awesome, we've got our parliamentary agreement now and let's start reforming the policy. It, it obviously comes from somewhere and comes from, from think tanks and things like that. Yes, yeah, it's a, it's a sort of curious mix of things that spur on reform. A lot of the time, necessity and people look at what the sort of medium and long-term trends are so you know, any incoming treasurer uh, will, you know, will get a brief from their treasury that will undoubtedly tell them that their expenditures are rising faster than their revenues. That would be the case in most jurisdictions. Mm. And so then the, the policy response will then be probably a combination of, well, we've got to slow down our rate of expenditure growth and let's have a look at the revenue side and see what we can do you then could then draw upon a rich body of taxation reviews in Australia over the last four decades that would, at a state and territory level, all pretty much recommend the same thing. Mm. What distinguishes whether reform is possible or not is the implementation plan and the, the journey from where we are now to where we might desire to be. And then the level of ambition of that reform and the pace of change. Mm. I'd like to think that, you know, if policymakers were starting from scratch and had a completely clean slate, they would not put in place the system that we currently have. De definitely. I, I agree. I think if you could just scrap it all and start again, it would probably be a much more efficient system. But that obviously can't just yes, no, no one no one really has that that luxury so mm. it then becomes a question of how you go about implementing change mm. uh, and that w whether it's tax reform or almost any other form of change some reasonably essential change management challenges uh, emerge but then mm. you know so too do many lessons on how you you can go about achieving a reform. Mm. and having a degree of acceptance of change. And uh, there have been contemporary examples of that. I mean, the GST is one such example yeah. in the last 20 years. It has been commented on by, by many that that really was probably the last significant 
tax change uh, at, at a federal level that certainly that involved any significant economy-wide change and it impacted everyone. Yeah. You can make more niche changes that have a, a smaller, more narrow impact, but you know, the, the examples that you listed before around franking credits and negative gearing when mm. in theory there were more winners than losers mm. there, still the losers were going to feel the pain very greatly and were very unhappy about it. And that is probably the, the political challenge that even though you might have a tax reform that benefits the majority, if it disproportionately hits a minority and they're very unhappy about it, mm. the way that modern politics and the media works now, very easy to whip up a scare campaign about a tax change. It's yep. much, much harder to actually implement something. Especially the franking credit uh, side of things. And again, I, I, I don't know, I still sit on probably the side of, of liking franking credits as a financial planner, but understandably, like I think a lot of people don't understand how they work and I'll, I'll park this for a, a topic on another uh, episode to actually <laughs> unpack franking credits and how they work. But I think it was that people were going, oh, they're taking away something, but they didn't know what that yeah. something was. But but it was gonna it was gonna go, and so uh, I think you're right that that change thing it's that that comfortability of oh no we we understand this yes. even though we, we might not quite understand it yes and yeah and layered yes with with complexity and then any debate on tax is not just about the most efficient means of raising tax mm. but it's also about how much should be raised mm. and so. If if your reform objective is both to change the way tax is raised and increase the amount of tax, yeah. that's doubly difficult. Yeah, yeah, it's easy, relatively easy to abolish tax. You then, of course, have to explain how you're going to pay for, uh, mm. or you know, or again, you could go to the community and say, "Yep, we're going to pay less tax, and we're also going to deliver less services." Cut all these services. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and and you could put that as a political platform, and that mm. that has happened before yeah. in, in Australian politics. But yeah. if you're simultaneously trying to say, "I'm going to cut tax and deliver more services," then people start to go, "Hang on, how are you going to manage that?" Yeah, yeah. To move the, the, the conversation probably a little bit more, I, I, I do love that the ACT, it, it is one of the, the, I would say, most progressive jurisdictions. And I do like that Victoria is uh, is jumping on the, the heels of that and, and tries to say they're the most pro progressive state. So I don't want to whip up a, a, a Dandrews versus uh, Andrew Barr uh, on that one. But um, uh, We have a running joke anyway. He can <laughs> oh, be the most, Victoria can be the most progressive state. <laughs> and we'll be the most progressive jurisdiction. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. But talking about stamp duty, and, and I, I guess in reflection on where stamp duty is going, I guess after tax reforms and now implementing it and being on that path to switching from that stamp duty reform, that's obviously showing success in, in the ACT. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah, look, so far the independent analysis that, that we've had commissioned through the ANU's Tax and Transfer Institute, the University of Canberra's National Centre for Economic Modelling and Victoria University have also uh, mm. had a look at this, ha has shown that, yes, it, the economic theory is, is correct, that it is, uh, it is leading to uh, higher incomes, more economic uh, output and more efficient collection of taxation. Uh, and you know, we've certainly noticed through this year and indeed 
in the the preceding years that the territory's revenues are less volatile and less linked to the ups and downs of the housing market mm. because we now collect a greater share of our revenue as a broad-based land tax rather than the transactional stamp duty. The value of that that reform you know, will, will ultimately be seen over the next 10, 20 and 30 years. Mm. And, and this is perhaps uh, another reason why you don't see it happen that often because the political cycle is four years. Mm. The economic benefit cycle on tax reform is uh, over the long run, as economists say, yep. uh, well beyond uh, a particular political cycle. And so you wear some of the political pain, mm. uh, of which we certainly have in, in implementing the policy. But I, you know, it will be the treasurer of the ACT in 2030 and 2040 <laughs> who will appreciate what, yep. what has been implemented Mm. Now we're nearly halfway through our 20-year transition. Yep. What New South Wales have done is the same ultimate policy goal and desire. Yep. Uh, they've just taken a, a slightly different path in the discussion paper they've put forward. Mm. My greatest beef, I think, with the media coverage in the last week has been to, to assume that New South Wales have actually done something. <laughs> no, they've, they've said they'll put out a discussion paper. They haven't yeah. actually fleshed out the, the detail. And the model that they're putting forward um, is slightly different from the ACT in that it's effectively a, a user choice model that puts the decision on the tax reform in the hands of an individual property purchaser. It then becomes in perpetuity once the first buyer has made the decision. Yeah, okay. That eases some of the political challenge because it means, you know, when you come to purchase a property, you either decide you'll pay the amount as stamp duty up front as a lump sum or you'll make a series of periodic uh, land tax payments over mm. time. Well, we don't yet know from the New South Wales uh process is what that level of land tax will be uh, and we also don't know what proportion of the total housing stock will make this switch mm. new south wales are projecting it will take 50 years yeah well to do their transition i i suspect there will still be properties in new south wales in a century's time that would still be stamp duty properties uh, because they'll be held uh, and they won't transact, and so that even that choice won't be made. And then there will be some where people make the choice, no, I'll stick with the stamp duty. So that's a different path. It's going to take yeah. a hell of a lot longer to achieve the economic outcomes and the economy-growing benefits and the more mm. efficient tax system. But, look, I'm not, I'm not going to criticise unduly a jurisdiction for at least heading in the right direction. Because I think one of the reasons why we don't have that much tax reform in Australia is that we sometimes expect it just to happen overnight. Mm. Uh, and so it's an old cliche, but the long journey, was it the journey of a thousand steps begins <laughs> with the first one? Yeah, yeah. And, and you've got to do it. You've got to start somewhere. Mm. Uh, and so that's what New South, New South Wales approach is the way they're going to do it. It's, it's going to be a bit longer than our approach and things will happen at a different pace and for different properties will be taxed differently. Whereas if ours is a more uniform, everyone's marching together one year at a time over 20 years. 
and I guess look, the stamp duty stuff, especially for for first home buyers and and uh, otherwise, I guess that that is hopefully helping make uh, property ownership a little bit more attainable. Yeah, this is what we're we're seeing. I've just sort of got the the latest data, and in, in the ACT, uh, one in four property purchases uh, in in the last month were to first home buyers. So that's pretty high. Uh, it, it, for us, it's generally been between 15 and 20%. So, you know, we're now up at 25. I, I think there's a couple of other factors there, but th- there is a decision to reform tax mm. and then there is a decision about, well, which cohorts might you benefit first? Mm. And so we took the decision that we would remove stamp duty for first home buyers. We'd remove it from the purchase of new land for new house and land packages yep. where someone would buy the block and then build the house and would take it off off the plan purchases. So our decisions have been also sort of a dual focus of wanting to stimulate the construction of new housing as well because mm. all of this debate fits within a, and all of these reforms fit within a broader context of improving housing affordability which in my mind is both a supply side challenge and a taxation challenge. Uh, and the, the sort of the reviews of our reform so far uh, have indicated that the, it has had that dual effect of more efficient taxation, a stronger economy, but then also the way we've structured it, targeting the support and the the initial stamp duty cuts to those cohorts, you know, who people trying to get into the housing market for the first yeah. time or pensioners downsizing. Yeah. Rather than going, our biggest priority is to reduce stamp duty on multi-million dollar properties. We've said, mm. no, we want to go and look at the more affordable end yeah. of the market first. And that's been a policy choice as well. And look, it's always, especially in the ACT and for, for people who are listening in other jurisdictions, but I guess ACT, because it's crown land, that stamp duty on investment property can actually, as general tax advice, be a tax offset for people. So I think that's probably been a yes. bit of a challenge in the ACT yeah, market well, it, at the moment, yeah. <laughs> it has a little, and, and but because of that, that's meant that we've determined to do more on the owner-occupier side. Mm because that isn't a tax deduction. And so, in essence, depending on a, on a person's income, on the investor's income, then a proportion of the stamp duty they pay is claimable as an ex, you know, as a expense in earning that rental income. And so, to be blunt, it's a bit of a cost shift back to the Australian government in that regard. Mm. Another yeah. small step to address vertical fiscal imbalance. <laughs> so, hence, in, in recognition of that, that's why we've decided to do more on the owner-occupier side and to have different rates of stamp duty for investors as opposed to owner-occupiers. Yeah, that's that's really interesting and really cool to be chatting about that stuff. And I, I, I'm noticing our time is flying, Andrew. We could talk about uh, tax reform and uh, and tax all day. One of my favourite topics. <laughs> <laughs> we just need uh, need the glass of uh, glass of red at the moment to uh, to continue that going. But being mindful of time, it, it has been great to have you join me today. And look, hopefully, people have got some insights to to some of that thinking and process behind where where tax reform and tax policy comes from. 
my reason for wanting to get you along to talk is just to help empower people so that they don't think that the system is something that's sort of out of their control or out of reach. It's actually something that individually we do have a, uh, a say in. We get to have, again, we're in a civil democratic society here in Australia where we get to make those calls on a democratic basis every four years or uh, every election cycle. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. And I would certainly assure people that uh, you know, almost every element uh, right down to the fine detail is analysed, reviewed, uh, and then you make tweaks to, to policy and settings. And for us, that, that happens every single year. And we you know, then make a decision about, well, what area of reform are we going to prioritise next? And in a 20-year reform program, we've broken it up into four five-year chunks and then we look at within each five years, we have an annual review. And so yeah. that means you, you can be flexible in, in how you approach the reform. Uh, and people's input from the broad to the high level through to the very technical uh, mm. is taken into account uh, as we go through this reform journey. Thanks again for your time and thanks for your insights. It has been really enjoyable to, to go through that. And I think whatever side of politics you sit on, it, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating process. And again, listeners, stay involved, stay engaged, uh, take, take note of this stuff. It is, it is quite fascinating. But thanks again, Andrew. Great to have you along. My pleasure. Thank you.